Hi, friends, and welcome to the Good Work Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Leonard, and we are here to ask the question, what does good work mean to you? We'll explore the values that drive us, the tensions we wrestle with, and ultimately how we connect the dots between achievement and fulfillment in our lives. Sound heavy? Nah. Let's lighten up and dive in. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Good Work podcast series. I'm so excited because today I'm here with someone that I admire greatly, also a friend and someone whose work, as I've gotten to learn more about it, because we knew each other personally before um, I got to learn about all of your all of your good work in the world, inspires me, had me clapping when I was listening to your TED Talk and really excited to hear your perspective. So I'm here today with Daniela Poppy Thornton. Am I saying it correctly? Yeah, I think I yeah, did it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll tell you a little bit about Daniela before we dive in together to this robust conversation. Um, so Daniela Poppy Thornton is an educator, facilitator, and author whose work focuses on systems-led leadership which is an approach to social innovation that centers on systems understanding. Daniela, you currently teach ongoing courses at um, University of Colorado Boulder, Dartmouth College, and Chicago Booth's Hong Kong campus, um, as well as a range of other educational programs. Very exciting. You serve as a consultant with a wide range of educational organizations, foundations, and for-profit companies that are looking to contribute to systems change. Um, you previously served as a lecturer at the Yale School of Management, the Watson Institute, and Oxford's Business School, where she was the deputy director of the School Center for Social Entrepreneurship. And I said she, but here I am. I'm with you. I can say you. You also designed an educational tool called the Impact Gaps Canvas, which I was so excited to learn about, and more on that in a minute. Um, which is used at accelerator programs and social impact education initiatives around the world. And you also launched the Map the System, which is a contest running at now 50 plus global institutions. And your work builds on six years of emerging market entrepreneurial experience in Cambodia, where you ran a hybrid social enterprise educational organization. And uh, for all of you listening, if you'd like to learn more about Daniela's work after you hear our conversation, you can check out her book, Learning Service, um, as well as her influential report called Tackling Heropreneurship. And we'll provide you all the links to find all those wonderful things. And I also highly recommend watching her TEDx talk on reclaiming social entrepreneurship, which really highlights some of your thinking and your worldview around some of the topics that have also been on my mind and kind of in the Venn diagram of where our worlds intersect. So I'm excited to introduce you to everyone and hear your insights. So thanks for being here, Daniela. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yay. So just to start out from, you know, the work that you do today, you said that, you know, your origins and all of this is built upon six years of experience in work that you did in Cambodia. And I wonder if you could just paint us a picture of how that all began and maybe some of the highlights and, and struggles and maybe facepalm moments that happened <laughs> along the way um, in that time. Shall we sure. start there? Yeah, that sounds great. So I went to Cambodia originally to visit a friend from my undergraduate program, and he was running something that was, you know, I later learned was a social enterprise, right? And it was called Digital Divide Data, and they had won the Skoll Award, and they'd won all this money, and they were doing interesting work, doing data entry with people who were at the time ex-trafficked women, landmine victims, people with polio, and now they work with anyone who has economic need and wants to, to further their educational uh, pathways. Mm. Um, and they work in multiple countries. But at the time, I had just come out of doing this consulting job right after undergrad. And 
I was wearing a suit five days a week. It was like back in the year 2000. I and can't picture you wearing no, a suit five no, days a week. Well, t- turns out I called my mom like one weekend. I was like, I can't do this. This is horrible. And my mom's <laughs> like, you have to do it for one year because you can't quit a job. you know. So I put on my calendar that I was going to quit in one year and I did. And <laughs> And then, you know, through different, did a few things, but ended up taught English in Japan and ended up in Cambodia and was visiting this friend and realized that he was using like Microsoft Access and these things that I learned in my quote unquote, horrible business, uh, you know, experience. And I was like, oh, wow. So you can use these kind of things for, for good. So that was my first introduction to Cambodia and to the concept of, this intersection of business models and, and impact. And then went back to Japan and I organized a bike trip to Cambodia. And we're going to go back and bike across the country and raise money. My mom was a teacher for 37 years. And so I have just a strong view of education as a key to change. And so I just was, oh, we'll build a school. Right. It's Googled build a school in Cambodia. It turns out there's a website, buildaschoolincambodia.com. At least there used to be. And <laughs> so we fundraised a bunch of money, built it. We actually built a bunch of schools. And, but, you know, I had no idea how do you research if this is a legitimate non- nonprofit, if it even exists, you know, and all those things. Right. So I finally I get there to see this school. And, and when we'd fundraise, we fundraised like $10 here and $100 there. I mean, you know, really grassroots style fundraising and raised, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars through lots and lots of, of donors. And so we had all these people who wanted to, you know, hear the good things that we'd done with the school. And I get there and it's kind of a half empty building with my name on it. And, you know, uh, Greta Arnquist was who I had originally founded Peppy with and, and all, you know, there were six of us going on this first trip. And Peppy, just for those who don't know, can you tell us what Peppy is? (laughs) Sure, sure. Okay, yes. Let me finish this one piece and I'm going to tell you what it is. Um, (laughs) So we get there and this is empty, half empty building, you know, and it's next to a half empty health center with a Belgian guy's name on it. And I ended up staying for six years, but in the time and, and, you know, from that moment on, the learning was unfortunately still slower. I would have made a big shift right then, but realized that, that schools don't, teach kids, right? People do, mm-hmm. but it's way easier to build a building, way mm-hmm. easier to fundraise for something like that. Cause you can check Mark it's done. There you go. And then, you know, to change the education system to make sure the teachers were being paid the $25 a month that they were meant to be paid where this building costs $65,000 to meet, you know, world bank specs. It's just a big discrepancy and my first introduction to how systems change. And spoiler alert, it's not from things. (laughs) (laughs) Big school. So anyway, and Peppy, just to answer your question, Peppy is the organization that we ended up founding. It was was originally Protect the Earth, Protect Yourself, but now it's just called Peppy Empowering Youth. And I can give you more on that too, but now it's run by an amazing Cambodian team, Cambodian leader, and they do much better work than than I did when I was running it because they understand the context and the systems. Imagine that. Amazing. And I I really appreciate because for you and anyone who might know more about, you know, my story, my experience, the overlaps and the parallels in some of our experience in doing development work and learning how to do it with dignity and respectfully and sustainably. The parallels are um, are very clear. And I really appreciate how how transparent and and humble you are about the mistakes that we all may have made along the way and the things that we can learn from. And we um, were taught that. It's easy for me to disparage myself because it's my story. Sure. And what I often find is when I tell this story and I go on and I can give you more examples of this, but you know, it, it goes on to kind of looking at orphanage tourism and the dangers of that and how we would like stop school for the day, stop, the, you know, come in and, and play with kids. And, you know, is that mm. okay once? Is that okay once a month? Is that okay mm. once a week? Is that okay once a day? Is that okay all day, every day, right? Like where mm-hmm. is the line, right? And yeah. then 
now that I have my own kids, I have definitely a sense of where that line is. It should have, I should have never been able to walk in that door. Right. But Mm. when I tell the stories sometimes to people that have also experienced volunteer travel or different things, there's sometimes like a defensiveness around, you know, but my orphanage was fine or, you know, my, and, and I'm not trying that's why I'm looking at systems and saying it's not any one of our faults necessarily that we thought we could be the heropreneur and like, you know, I'm going to save people in Cambodia, but I know nothing about my own education system or my, mm. you know, I know nothing about their language and their culture and their history, but I'm getting off the plane and I'm here to help. Right. Mm-hmm. But we were taught that because that is also we in our classes, it's, you know, when fundraise for this or donate food to that. And we are not taught how to understand a system. We are not taught how to understand a problem. We are not rewarded for our learning. We are rewarded for the volunteering and the fixing and the hackathon and the doing, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what needs to shift. The achieving and the and the achievement well, of, of, of kind of fulfilling these narratives that we all were taught about well, what it what looks like. Is. Yeah, right, what it looks like to achieve that good work. Yeah. Every time I, I hear you talk about this now, I just want to stand up and cheer <laughs> because it's so it's so important. And personally, I don't think that I would have reached any of this perspective without also making some of those same mistakes That's and true. learning and learning by doing. So there is there is that. But how do we shorten that learning curve and make sure that we don't perpetuate you know, harmful systems and and narratives that do not need to be upheld about what it looks like to help, particularly if you want to work internationally. Um, I always say, is- just don't make my mistakes. You can make your own mistakes. So <laughs> my job is to help you not make my mistakes, right? So, you know, if I can share my story in a way that mm-hmm. resonates, hopefully that that helps people not repeat my same things. And like you said, yeah, we're going to make mistakes. But the the way to approach this is to then like be constantly checking in right around what did I just learn here that went wrong (laughs) what can I learn right yeah and for people what would you say to someone and this is kind of getting a little ahead of ourselves and then we'll back up but um, what would you say to someone who is beyond their quote-unquote learning years maybe they've already had a successful career they are maybe recently retired maybe they have a unexpected you know sooner than they expected abundance of time and resources, and they want to put their focus on the social good, right? Mm -hmm. But they are nervous to really learn because they might have this tension between all of the things they've already achieved and their kind of status in their previous life and needing to humble themselves to to learn again. What advice would you give to someone in that position who is not fresh out of business school wanting to just start, but is maybe starting a second chapter or a new chapter and maybe knows too much to be blind to what they don't know? What advice would you give someone like that who was approaching a new, yeah, a new chapter of, of wanting to give in a new way? So when I was working in Cambodia, I would always say, you know, there's this kind of, especially in international volunteering, there'd be this mismatch of skills. You know, there'd be, you know, even something like the Peace Corps, the that same half-empty health center eventually had a young, very kind Peace Corps volunteer when the Peace Corps came first came to Cambodia. Mm. And he was, I think, an English literature major. Sure. <laughs> but he got mm. put into the health center and everyone called him doctor, right? Because right. they thought, well, he's working in the health center and he would have that skill set, which he did, which he didn't. And that's so there'd be this mismatch. And so someone who is at a point in their career where they have a lot of skills that wants to deliver those somewhere using impact wherever they want to use that those skills for good. Well, first they come with that's a great asset, right? Whatever your experience says, if you're a social media manager, you know, you can bring that, you can bring anything, right? You can bring your accounting skills, you can bring your management experience, your training, your teaching, whatever that looks like. Mm. Um, so that's great. And the but the other pieces, I when, when I was in Cambodia, I would always say I would rather have a less skilled 
volunteer in a specific area, let's take this, the social media consultant, right? I would rather have the less skilled one with the right attitude Mm. than the completely skilled one who is coming in to save, right? Or is, has the superiority or is just not going to want to spend any time learning about the culture. Now, Mm. like I said, the irony is I made all those mistakes. I did it wrong. Right. So I'm, what I'm trying to encourage is for people to not make my mistakes. We, we co-authored a book called Learning Service. It is written towards a younger demographic, but it still does have pieces of, you know, how do we think about that internal work, our own mindsets, getting ourselves set up to like be in a learning position because we think we've been taught we're supposed to be the teacher, right? Even just the right. term volunteer and beneficiary, mm-hmm. we need to stop using that terminology in this particular type of a case, because especially when you're going into another culture, another place, you are going to be benefiting a ton too. You need to learn a lot about about the culture, about this issue that you care about and the context there, right? So with this sense that I'm the volunteer and you're the beneficiary, I think I need to be giving you the knowledge, right? Whereas if I'm coming in with this attitude of, I'm here to try and do as much good as I can, but I recognize that I have to earn the right to do that. Mm. There's a a man named Mickey Sampson, who is a a mentor of mine and many others. And and he would say, yeah, you have to earn the right to bestow your benevolence on the people of Cambodia. And that's, that's a quote from him. But yeah, and even the concept of benevolence, there is still this kind of status play happening going on where there is someone with power and someone, you know, receiving. And it's more of mm-hmm. a kind of power over dynamic versus a power to and an empowering dynamic. And yeah. I'm curious when you say you would rather have somebody come in with the right attitude, how if we had to distill that down, you know, what are the, maybe the top three things that you would say could encompass the right attitude to go into, say that, say they're a volunteer and I'll just make it a really specific context, right? Because I've been working with Kisimani school in Tanzania now for 10 years, well, more than that. And we have these discussions when people reach out to me often and say that they want to come and volunteer at our school. And it's a very, the gate is pretty tight because we can't just open the door to anybody who wants to come in and and volunteer because we know that we might end up in a situation where where we have these mismatched skills or we want to, how, how could I, as the gatekeeper of people who express interest in volunteering, how could I distill down the three main aspects of the right attitude in order for our head teacher or me to together feel comfortable opening the gate for someone to come in? What would that right attitude be in your opinion? I wish I had the learning service book because I think we went through this and I don't know what we said because I haven't read it in a very long time. But (laughs) I definitely am sure humbleness was, you know, high up there, which you already mentioned earlier. Yeah. You know, just kind of a willingness to learn an openness to have our opinions change, right? Like there's some quote and I'm going to get it wrong, but it's, it's something like the only person who can't learn is the person who knows it all, right? Or something, mm-hmm. you know, something like that, right? So sure. if, if we're going in with an attitude of, I want to be of service, but I don't, I know that I don't know enough to do that. So I'm here to learn as well, right? So that's humbleness, openness, flexibility. And those are things we can practice, right? So in mm. learning service, we talk about practicing those attributes. And sure. and I want to go back a second, just say, when you asked me about, you know, you, you said someone who wants to kind of have like a second career doing good, mm. they have these skill sets. I jumped into this international volunteering conversation because that was, Cambodia was on my mind and we were just talking about it. But I would say, number one thing is don't go to an, you know, an international place as your first stop to do good necessarily. Mm. You know, it, there are so many places that need your help right 
next door, right? In our own backyard. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the more interactions we have and the more time we have to get to know that organization and the issue and what's happening, the more likely we are to be able to find a place to really add value with our services because we will understand the system better and better, right? As we go someplace for one week or one month or a few months, it's much less likely that you're going to have the discernment, understanding, context, contacts and context um, mm-hmm. to be able to to add value in the the most beneficial way, right? So I just want to wanted to make that clear. I'm not advocating for for international service as the sure. as the way to go. And actually, in the book, learning service, a, a key component of that was like the first half of the book is saying like should you even consider doing this type of a service trip? And and we think, you know, there's tons of other options mm. and what, what could that look like? I love it. I can't, I can't wait to recommend it to everybody. Okay. Question was there. So for you, as you've been on this trajectory yourself, following this line of inquiry about how to tackle heropreneurship, how to actually affect systematic change within as I understand it, the the way that we teach social entrepreneurship. Is there a time when you felt really connected and purposeful in your own work when you knew, yes, this is the direction to go in, in terms of the role that you feel you are playing in changing the, the system of how we teach social entrepreneurship? How did you know what your next right thing was? Oh, I still don't know. <laughs> I never know, but I feel like what I, I mean, the number one thing I'm working on now is trying to like tap in to my inner knowing into my gut mm. and just know what is right next. You know, if I think if ever we're holding on to this big far off thing, not that we shouldn't have goals and wishes and dreams, that's fine, but it's hard to know. Like there's so many ways to get there. Right. And so like, that's actually something I'm working on is not Hmm. being tied to the pathway, right? And is to like tap in, like, am I supposed to do this? You know, you know, so, but I wouldn't say that I necessarily operated that way in the past and I'm working towards operating that way now. But to answer your question about times where I felt like I was in alignment with my own purpose, hmm. when I was in Cambodia, I would say I was mostly on this learning curve and a lot of, you know, really quick turnarounds of, Let's do this. Oh, that was horrible. Let's do this. Oh, why did we do that? Right. <laughs> so yeah. there were, it was a really, you know, I, I would always say the highs were higher and the lows are lower. Like it was so rewarding to do the work that we were doing and so many hard things. Right. Mm. And I was young and I had no idea how to manage people and I made a ton of mistakes and all of that. So you know, a great school for me and not necessarily the world's best outcomes in the process. Although, like I said, I'm, I'm not proud of myself for starting it because I don't think I started it with the best intentions or knowledge or pathways, but I'm proud that it exists in a way that, that Mm. is doing good things now. So, so I guess where I do feel proud is in the learning. And then when I came out of, when I left Cambodia, I went to Oxford, I did my MBA through the school scholarship and then worked at the school center for social entrepreneurship. And through that work and teaching at other institutions, I was realizing that we were teaching social entrepreneurship, social innovation, social change, whatever kind of context the organization or the, the university was in, we were teaching it in the same way that I was making those mistakes, right? We were, Mm -hmm. we were saying, you know, uh, we're going to give you a scholarship for the summer to go to Kenya to try out your app for, you know, for teachers or for farmers or whatever it is. And you, and for people who'd never been to Kenya and they've maybe never farmed and they, and that's not their fault. That was our fault as educators Mm -hmm. and our fault in the education system that we were rewarding the solving before we were rewarding the understanding of the problem. And so once I got into teaching and kind of advocating for the changes in how we teach this work, that's where I realized, oh, you know, all those mistakes that I made in Cambodia that I used to feel bad about and guilty about and still, you know, still do sometimes. Well, wow, those are all fuel for my ability to share this message in a way that Mm. can resonate with people. Mm. Yeah. 
And when I was watching your TED Talk, I could see how lit up you were when you got to share the example of the student who received the funding for going and traveling and learning in New Zealand and then bringing her knowledge back to Hawaii. Could you share a little bit about that story and just what was different about about that particular student and how that funding model actually shifted something systemically, if you recall? Yeah, no, I, I definitely do. But let, I'll, I'll share a bit of context of, mm. of wider context is that most innovation programs and MBA programs, et cetera, have, they all have business plan competitions, mm-hmm. right? So here's my business, fund me, right? And then in the last, you know, 20 years, let's say they started having social business plan competitions and those are similar. Fund me, I'm the one who's going to solve it, Right. And the way that we set up those social business plan competitions were by taking the questions that one would have and the training that one would have in that business plan competition and adding a couple impact questions at the end. Mm -hmm. But they still had questions like, who are your competitors, right? Like it was designed in this way that is like, no, prove to me why I should pick you because you're going to win at solving this problem, right? Mm -hmm. So who enters those? competitions, the type A MBAs. I am a type A MBA. So I get it. Right. So these, like, these are people who are like, I know how to fix it. I know how to solve it. Right. Like me got off the plane in Cambodia. I'm here to help. I know nothing about you, nothing about your culture, nothing about your language, but I'm going to fix it. Right. Mm-hmm. So what happened was at Oxford, I realized we were, there's a couple of things that we needed to shift. We had these business plan competitions and we were like, it was students who were in their really rigorous one-year MBA are then supposed to be doing this MBA. And then they're supposed to be pitching, you know, a business model at the same time. Right. And so we made some changes there to say, go out, do your thing, learn. Right. And then you can apply for this in 10 years, five years, you know, you can apply for this at a point when you do have a really good understanding of the problem and can therefore, you know, launch something that that might have more more impact. So I'm not sure if these changes have all lasted at, at Oxford, by the way, but these are the ones that I made when I was when I was working at the school center. And so the another thing we said was we need to create other incentives mm-hmm. for learning to reward, incentivize, celebrate learning before these like quick fixes. And so we created what is now called Map the System. Um, This past year, I think it ran at 50 institutions around the world. And it's based on a tool that I designed through a fellowship at the Clore Social Leadership Program um, about almost, I guess, 13 years ago. And it's called the Impact Gaps Canvas, super basic tool. Mm -hmm. I always say it is common sense, but not common practice. So common sense that if there's a problem in the world that you really cared about, let's mm. say it's homelessness in your town, right? Or whatever it might be, there's something you you really care about this issue, this polluted stream near your house. Well, first you would want to understand the problem. You know, so in the homelessness case, how many people, what is happening? What are the trends? You know, what you'd want to also understand the wider system, like what are the rules and laws surrounding this? who's trying to solve this? What's already being tried? So you'd, you'd want to understand the problem itself and then who's who's already trying to solve it and what's being tried. Because if you really want to solve it, you'd say, therefore, there is a gap in something that's not being done, right? And so here's a way I can contribute. Or in that process, if you really do that process, you'll probably end up, wow, there's this amazing organization or this amazing person or this policymaker or this new thing. And I want to get involved in that, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not normally how we how we do go about things because that's how not how we were taught to go about things. And so this tool is now this competition. And instead of pitching, here is my solution, pick me you're pitching complexity. You're pitching saying, here's my understanding of the problem. Here's my understanding of the the landscape of current solution efforts and possible opportunities for solutions. And here's the gaps that I think could be tried based on that learning. Mm. And so therefore, in that, even in the first year we offered that, we recognized, I can't remember, but I want to say, you know, we went from like seven, six, seven applicants to the business plan competition to like 35 applicants into this because you wasn't just the type A's anymore. It was the students like that woman who grew up in Hawaii who engaged in complexity, who weren't saying, I have the answer. They're actually saying, I don't know the answer, but mm. I know that I care about this. 
right? So she grew up in Hawaii and what she cared about was economic development for Hawaiians with alongside cultural preservation. And so instead of looking at Hawaii in her research, she looked at New Zealand because she had felt that there was a better approach there and wanted to see like, where did that approach come from? What did that approach look like? You know, and at the time we created funding called Apprenticing with a Problem Funding, which has since stopped, but I believe they're still offering it in Canada through a program that Mount Royal University now runs, Map the System Across Canada. But this Apprenticing with a Problem term, I I borrowed with permission from a woman named Jessamine Seamus Lau, who used to run the Peary Foundation. And I just love that term. It's like, I, you know, it's a problem that you care about and you don't have lived experience of, right? So the real leaders who understand a problem in way more depth have the lived experience of that problem. And there's a woman named Baljeet Sandhu who's done a lot of work on the value of lived expertise. Mm. And so she's advocating for for that. And we both had the Clore Fellowship at the same time. So it was interesting. She was advocating for lived experience. And I was recognizing, wait, but I'm a woman from Westchester, New York. And I don't want to just deal with like, you know, the problems of the suburbs, right? So if I want to affect change in Cambodia, in homelessness and in my backyard, even though I haven't lived it, well, I don't want to do it the way I did in Cambodia, which was this superiority. I'm here to fix it because I have wealth. I'm here to, mm. you know, bestow it. But this concept of apprenticing with a problem is a way to say, great, instead of going out and starting that homeless fa- nonprofit that, you know, from day one, go work as the accountant for the homeless shelter, go intern for a policymaker who, you know, a government official or somebody who is, whose job touches on that, right? Go get yourself involved in the issue in some way and start to apprentice with that problem and start to learn more. And eventually, like I said, if you, there is no hierarchy that says an entrepreneur is a better way to go, but we, that's another flaw in our current education system. But there's people who are designed that way. Great. If that's how you're designed, then eventually you might move into that space, but you'll do so with a much deeper understanding of the issue. Couldn't agree more. And like I said, standing up and cheering. And what's so fascinating is that I know, so for me, my background is in the performing arts, right? And so for me, if I were to have approached the work that I ended up doing in Tanzania and following this this spark of interest in seeing seeing a gap seeing a problem wondering you know how it was going to be fixed making some of those same mistakes along the way hopefully correcting them along the way as well and ultimately i hope you know having a sustainable project that is that is nothing to do with me at this point having gone through that process if i had at the beginning with my background had to go to a pitch competition and say why you should pick me to work on this project, I would have been so intimidated and felt so out of my element that I probably never would have gotten started. However, if you kind of reverse engineer it, what I hear you saying is that if you take, you know, if you take this impact gap process and you map it and you kind of look at where the work needs to be done, if I reverse engineer it, I can kind of look back and say, I think that that's what I did, but I don't know if I would have been able to describe it that way mm-hmm. at the beginning. And so how incredible to say, here is a hindsight being 2020, here is a roadmap to be able to follow some of these same processes and take a more humble and sometimes creative approach to solving a problem that may not call for your personal skills. And you'll find that out, right? If um, if you decide that you want to go and work in tackling the problem of unhoused folks in your own backyard, probably a good idea to find out who's already working on that problem, see where your skills might actually be applicable, and go and apprentice with that problem before trying to come in and be the boss. And my curiosity is, isn't there some tension and I'm curious what you think about this. Isn't there some tension for people who are used to being able to 
win at something, to achieve something, to build something, to be able to go and just to use your example, be the accountant at a small organization. There's a little bit of a tension there where that experience might feel highly uncomfortable, right? Being in a role where you are not the leader when previously you may have been the leader, that might be highly uncomfortable. And that could be an obstacle to actually affecting the change that we ultimately want to make. So what do you say to people who are grappling with that, where they where they see what solution the problem might need, but it doesn't necessarily match up with what they want to do? How do they, how do they bridge the gap between what a problem actually needs and where they feel they can actually help? What do you do when it doesn't line up or it feels so uncomfortable that maybe they are just plain scared to reach out to that organization and see if they need an accountant? Yeah, great question. Well, first I want to say there is always a way to add value with whatever <laughs> skills you have. There's always a way. Now, what you're talking to is that that will require humbleness mm. to figure out what that is, right? But there, if you have a lot of skills and really what you just care about is doing good, but it's like, I, I do this Venn diagram with, with with students and I'll say this circle that says, I want to be a founder, right? Mm. And there's another circle that says, or or in, you could replace that circle, let's say in for this conversation with, I want to use my skills, right? Let's say it's accounting or whatever it is. And then the next is, I want to solve this particular problem, right? And with students, I say, I want to be a founder. I, ha- I want to use this business model and I want to care about this problem. And I think they do not, you can't, there's not a guaranteed overlap of those things. If it's an issue that you care about, then go ahead, get married to that problem and dig in and apprentice with it and learn. And you will find a pathway to contribute to change. And we can talk in a second about, you know, what that would require to like that humbleness of, of finding that pathway. Now, let's say you want, you're really married to using your accounting, then I would be agnostic on the issue. Mm. You know, if you're really married to that, like go out there and there's, there's lots of different sites that you could put yourself up on and look for, for a volunteer position or a board position or a paid job with a nonprofit or a social venture or something using that skill set, right? Even something like the Peace Corps, like I said, there's a mismatch. It's not necessarily that they match skills to needs, whereas something like VSO, which is the, the kind of British equivalent of that or Commonwealth equivalent of that, they do. So they, you know, if you had a, if you were a, a doctor or you were an accountant, whatever, you could apply mm-hmm. to a role in a, in a VSO position. So that's if you want to do something abroad. And locally, there's lots of different, you know, job search sites that you could find that are impact-based. Now, if you have an issue that you care about, you can't guarantee this overlap of, I want to do exactly this, or I want to be the founder, or I want to be the boss, or I want to be this, but I, and then I want to solve this problem, Right. The problem of the unhoused. Thanks for reminding me um, the right terminology. We're all, we're all stumbling <laughs> through, stumbling know, right? through. So in that case, it's back to that statement that I said, I would much rather have the volunteer who has the attitude of humbleness mm. and learning than the one who has the best skills, but doesn't have that. Right. And that's where it's practicing those things. You know, there's a lot of people are really excited about or you know, look at the SDGs. And, you know, I sometimes think these top-down goals have concerns about sometimes how they're implemented. But but mm-hmm. there's also something called the inner development goals that I've looked at a bit. Mm-hmm. And that is this, you know, I don't know a ton about it, but I just, from what I've seen around, I just like that concept of saying, we cannot think that we can just go out and change the world without changing ourselves. It Preach. starts there. Yeah. Preach. If we were all in this humble state of learning, forget it. We wouldn't have 99% of these problems, right? And so that's where the real work has to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's that hard piece to get over of the person who was the CEO and now wants to, to make this shift. You know, I used to run something at Oxford that we've, we founded while I was there, which is basically an impact career fair. We called mm-hmm. it launch at the time. And we would bring in different people that were hiring or, or even if they weren't hiring, just you know, people to talk about 
how they hire and what it looks like in the impact in different impact roles. And this woman who who ran a social investment fund would say, don't you come in here from a 20-year career in investment banking and say, I have seen the light. I want to do good now. Here I am. You know, I can do a spreadsheet and I'm going to save the world. No. She's like, you have to show me and prove to me that you have had a conscience. She's mm-hmm. like, you, know, you can't just all of a sudden be like, I need to erase all the things that I've done and use these skills. No, she's like, where was your volunteer time? What boards were you on? Like, show me that you care about things, not just that you have these skills, right? And yeah. and that's that is the part that I think I don't know if you've followed any of these movements, and I don't know how big they are right now. But at the time when I was in Oxford, there was, you know, these these movements of what is it called? It's like give what you can. There's the book, yeah, effective altruism. Yes, effective altruism, and I did some debates with them, mm. but the part that they miss, I think that they miss, they have this view that if you could get two jobs after graduation, mm-hmm. one job pays you $30,000 to work at Have education fun. center. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Like know, a, this is the first like one. A, it's the first one. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, my number is too high, but let's say whatever, you know, 20, $20 $30,000 at a, at some kind of a, a nonprofit that you nonprofit. care about, an issue that you care about. Yeah. So an education program, let's say, or you can get a $100,000 job at the hedge fund. Their view is get the $100,000 job at the hedge fund, donate $70,000 because you can hire, you know, mm-hmm. two and a third people, right? So, well, you'd probably have to keep some of that money. So you can hi- you donate the 40 because you need to feed yourself, sure. right? So so you donate the difference and then they can hire, like, you know, hire someone and a, and a third. So what that misses is that you cannot replace care. Right. So Baljeet Sandhu, who I mentioned, mm-hmm. who this advocate for the value of lived expertise and has done such interesting and awesome work on that in like 12 different fronts. You could not replace her. You right. give two million dollars and you hire six people. It will not replace her because she cares so much about this issue and she knows all the right you know, places to intervene. And so that is what I would say to somebody is like, what do you care about? You are going to add the most value when you care about something. So go out and bump into problems. I always say bump into problems until you find something. You're like, I care about this. Great. Okay. Now you do something. And that is something that is not quantifiable on a spreadsheet and that you have to be able to feel in your own body. Mm-hmm. And if you have become disconnected from that feeling, we need to find a way to get there again. And it is so intangible and so seemingly fluffy, right? The idea of, oh my gosh, the secret ingredient is your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't agree more. Because when we take these, you know, right brain, left brain, and we take the spreadsheets and the all the impact measurements and every everything over here, and we actually smush it together with that feeling that you have when you care so much about solving this problem that you will do whatever it takes to figure out how to help, then you're in that mindset of humility growth mindset versus fixed mindset. Mm. And it's attached to your emotions and our emotions drive our actions. So yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Um, I started a program at Oxford that was called, yeah, leading for impact. Or like you said at the beginning, the work that I do now, I call systems led leadership mm. because it's that combination of the inner, like that, like I would view leadership work, not as a positional power you know, positional piece of leadership, but like you are a leader, not because of your title. People don't always follow someone who has a higher title, but you're a leader because of your, the inner pieces, right? Because people feel like inspired. They feel, feel connected, whatever that might be just, or maybe just because you're, you're head down and you're doing the right thing, right? Whatever mm. that looks like, but that's all inner stuff. And then yeah. systems led, I would say is like, you need a, you need a basic understanding of systems, just the sense of like that things are interconnected and what that means and emergence mm. and all of that. You need a basic sense of that. 
And then you need, like, I like to call it systems led leadership because I, in maybe the, the TEDx talk that you saw, I called it systems change leadership. Mm. And I would have the type A people come up to me after and say, oh, I thought I was a social entrepreneur. And now I realize I am a systems change leader. And I am not only going to start my organization, but I'm also going to change the whole system. And I was like, oh, I have done something wrong. Um, <laughs> this is not the correct title. And I so will be I, the best systems change leader. <laughs> going to, I am the best systems. I was born the best systems change leader. And so now I call it systems led leadership because even if you take a nap, the system is going to change, right? Like you, yeah. you can't take credit Right in this way. So if you take a nap in 2019 and you wake up now, like what? All these things have shifted, right? You didn't do that, right? right? So if you want to impact change, you constantly, not every day, because your brain would hurt if you sat at that 30,000 foot level all day, every day, mm -hmm. but regularly, you know, if it's in your quarterly meetings, if it's on an annual retreat, if it's just like in processes that you do, but you have to have some sort of regularity of checking back in. Hey, is our work still fit in into the wider system? Is this like, is this still where our, the needs are? Right. And having a sense that that's going to change with or without you and a humbleness to know that, you know, your approaches, when you take that type of approach and this nonlinear approach to think, you know, when we, that's why impact measurement is so hard when you're looking at a wider system, because you recognize I can never do it alone. It's never going to be all me. I can't take credit that we solved the problem of yeah. marriage equality, right? Like that's no one person can yeah. say that. Yeah. Um, I, I struggle with that a lot because there are a lot of narratives that we, that we, we just don't have any alternatives to where sometimes I will be on the receiving end of accolades that I feel that I, I cannot receive because they are directed towards a huge number of people that have worked together towards this problem. But, but the accolade goes to me and I struggle sometimes with how, how to graciously receive somebody's, you know, I, I we're so excited about this great news you shared about, about your school, how I can, kind of graciously redirect those accolades to the large number of people that actually worked on a problem. So it's not a question, just wanted to share that that is something that I certainly struggle with. And, and, and those little, little things are pieces to grapple with and teeny, teeny, teeny fragments of pieces to, to work on as we think about how do I, how do I play my own part in kind of changing this this system of voluntourism and the saviorism complex that goes with international work. So that's that's kind of where I have been playing and that's a point of struggle for me. So I'm just glad that you brought that up. I'm Again, listening to this that. book, Power for All. Hmm. A Harvard professor or two wrote it. And anyway, they give an example in there that that might be interesting for you to read about. With the send woman. it my way. Yeah, I'll send it your way. <laughs> Her main thing was how do you like how do you set up systems to keep yourself in check as you gain yeah. more and more power in the, in those those ways. Yeah. Well, send it my way, and um, I will put it in the show notes when we find it. Daniela, this has been a delight, as I knew it would. Is there anything that I didn't ask or that you wish we had talked about? I think the thing that I care most about now, in in terms of how I'm educating and what I hope any anyone who takes like a class with me walks away with like my goal for my class that I'm teaching at, at CU Boulder this fall is that because you took this class, you watch the news differently. You read the news, you listen to the news differently mm. and that you engage in complexity. So the number one thing is anytime we were like, my people are right and your people are wrong, no matter what that issue is no matter what that issue is. And there's a lot of them right now where people are polarized on all the things, right? Yeah. Those people, anytime you say those people or the people who support that candidate, right? Whatever it is, mm -hmm. the other side, when you hear yourself othering them and categorizing them as they all believe this and they are anti the environment or they are whatever, we're in trouble. That's what we need to shift is that there is complexity always. 
you know, I give an example here. We Boulder is being a smart city and we have smart meters that are hmm. being installed all around. And there are like, there's environmental movement towards that. This is better for the environment. Hmm. And there are people who are really EMF sensitive who can feel the, the, the frequencies and, and are, you know, saying, Hey, this is harming me and therefore probably harming you. Right. It's complex. We have to engage in the complexity. It's not that, Oh, if you're anti them, you're anti-environment, or if you're pro them, you don't care about people. We need to engage in that complexity. And then with, when we have like a little more nuance of that, we can make better decisions. We can become more Mm -hmm. informed. So that's, you know, what I would advocate for is, and, th- and there's a view that with neuroplasticity of our brains, the more we engage in the nuance, the more likely we are to engage in the nuance of something else. And that mm-hmm. is what we need. If you're in a conversation and someone's saying, all of those people are like this, try and help bring in the nuance. Try and help say, well, let's look at it from the other side. I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm not going to change your mind on any of these big issues. But if you can engage in the nuance, you can tone it down. You can you can visualize the system in a wider way and say, oh, okay, it might not be perfect instead of I'm advocating that it is, right? And that way we yeah. can start to make changes. So thank you for having me. It's really been a delight and I could chat with you for the next few hours, but hopefully I know. we'll do that over the tea someday soon. <laughs> we will. I, I think there are many, many cups of tea in, in our future. Daniela, thank you so much. And for folks that want to connect with you, where can they find out more about your work and what you're working on right now? Sure. Systems-led leadership is a website that I have that is so not updated, but you can find me there. (laughs) Systemsledleadership.com? Should be. Should be. I don't know. All right. Should I should I mention tackling hero entrepreneurship? Sure. Systemsleadership.com and yeah. yeah, or tackling heropreneurship or learning service. Yeah, you can reach me on, on LinkedIn or any of those places. Oh wait, and can I add one thing? Who yes, because, because my... this is always when the best stuff happens. Yes. Okay, good. Well, just because <laughs> I'm recognizing okay, yeah. I want to add this. So of something that people can look at, but just because my colleague will be like, why didn't you mention this? But um, so you can add this wherever it makes sense or not if it doesn't. But a colleague, James Stouch at Mount Royal University and I and, and his colleague, Anna Johnson, wrote a toolkit a, a number of years ago called A Student Guide to Mapping a System. So if there's anyone who's wanting, you know, tools of how do you think about these this way? How do you think about a system? How do you start to like understand it? What are the like practices that I could bring in to my work or just, you know, my own self trying to learn about an issue that I care about? Hmm. That would be a really good base of a place to start looking. And we're actually rewriting it as a book. We're in the midst of that now. So you can look out for that in the future. Can't wait. Well, thank you so much for your generosity of time and insight. Appreciate you. Yeah, no, thank you. That was fun. Thanks for listening, friends. I'd love for you to join this conversation and hear your perspective too. To connect with us, head over to leahleonard.me and way to go. Good work. Good work.